Well, hello, and welcome to the Christian Contrast Podcast, where we talk about how walking with Jesus leads us to live different than the world around us. Um, I'm Dan, and uh, I'm going to be doing it today. I'm going to be starting the first of four episodes where we are going to be going through biblical passages, New Testament passages that talk about marriage. Um, and I thought this was significant for, for a few reasons. Um, and the first, and I'm going to talk about it a lot in the passage that we'll go through in this episode, um, if we're talking about ways that we live different than the world around us, that the idea that the, the cleansing and the leading of Jesus leads us to be different people, marriage is one of the key areas of our lives where we do live differently. And so going through some key passages is going to be significant in that way. Um, and also because this is a topic in our culture right now, um, consistently trying to figure out what marriage is, trying to figure out how different other cultural realities fit into this, trying to figure out manhood and womanhood. I think all of this is tied into this. So we're just going to go through four New Testament passages. It's going to be kind of like Bible study. I'm going to just look to walk us through the passage. In fact, as I do it, hopefully it'll it'll give a little bit of insight as you're reading the Bible into that this is a good way to read the Bible and, and see connections between it, and just to say, what does this passage teach us about marriage? And so for the first one, I, I thought I'd go for a, a really big one. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, which if you've been to a wedding, a lot of times this passage is read, or at least part of this passage is read, and, and I'll get into why that's the case. Um, it's well known, and part of it, I, I actually want to start with um, a statement that Paul Wake makes towards the end of these verses, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, um, something that he says in verses 31 and 32, and, and then I'll go back and walk through the whole passage. But the reason I want to start here is because it's, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but Paul says something really significant, and maybe the most significant thing that he says about marriage. He says in verse 31, and he quotes Genesis 2:24 here, when Adam and Eve are first brought together by the Lord, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So I wanted to say that up front because that is the big picture of what Paul is doing in this passage about husbands and wives. He's making the claim that marriage itself, and he goes all the way back to when marriage began, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he quotes that and he says, actually, when I'm quoting this passage, I'm not just talking about a man and a woman, I'm talking about Christ and the church that Christ is seen as the groom, and that the church is seen, seen as the bride, that marriage is a picture of something much bigger. And as Christians, this is a unique framework that we have when we talk about marriage and when we approach marriage in our lives. That it, it, and it's different in different cultural expressions, but right now you might say, all right, uh, to, to the degree that marriage is valued in our culture or that people are interested in marriage, um, it usually has to do with sort of the, the fulfillment of, I found that one person who's going to partner with me in life and make me happy, and I'm going to look to make them happy, and we're, we're soulmates, we sort of found each other. It, it's a very individualistic idea. And that's why it's very easy for us to say, if that's not working anymore, don't worry about it. Um, we as Christians come at something bigger. We, we say, all right, actually, marriage is a thing, not because human beings came up with it. it. It's something that God came up with. And God came up with it certainly as a blessing to us. There's a lot of different passages in the Bible that point towards the idea that marriage is meant to be a blessing. It's, it's a blessing to the human race but also that marriage has a bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose in marriage is that it's a picture. It's a picture of Christ and the church. 
God wanted to do something that would allow people to get insight into who he is and what he would eventually do through sending his son to save us. And so he made marriage. And so before even going through the rest of it, I just want to say that this should tell us a few things just about how we think about marriage. Um, first of all, this should erase from us any sense of the idea that some people have where they'll say, well, we're, we're married before God. Um, like we, we didn't go through the ceremony and we didn't have an event or anything like that, but we just sort of decided we are married before God. Um, that doesn't work in this whole construct. That ultra-individualistic, it's just me and her and God, and that's all that matters, that doesn't work because marriage is a picture of something. Marriage is actually in some ways about the community because it's about people around us seeing marriage and getting a picture of the gospel. So it doesn't work when we do that hyper-individualistic idea and we just say, well, well, we're married before God. It doesn't really matter if the community recognizes it. It does matter if the community recognizes it because in some ways it's for the community. Um, this means that we also have to set aside any idea of, well, if it's not working out and if you're no longer happy, why would you stay in a marriage where you're no longer happy? This is about something bigger than us. Um, now, in a, in a couple weeks, in a future episode, I will go through the passage where Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage, and we'll get into all the ins and outs of that and the exception clause, that, that there is an exception for divorce, which is debated, but, but I think there is a legitimate exception for divorce. Um, but, but at the same time, the big picture is this. Marriage is not something that we came up with, and then we say, well, if this thing that we came up with isn't working anymore, we'll just get rid of it. In the same way that we'd say, well, I have this gym membership, but if it's no longer working for me, and if I have weights that I can use at home, and I find that I'm not really enjoying the gym that much, I'll just cancel my membership. That's not what marriage is, because marriage is bigger than us. It's showing Christ in the church. And by the way, this also is the reason why as Christians, we would not affirm sort of so-called gay marriage. Because as we're going to go through in this passage, part of the unique picture of what marriage is, is not just two human beings really liking each other or even loving each other. It specifically is about a man and a woman in a relationship, in a committed relationship, that then puts on display Christ and the church. It's not just human one and human two. It is very much tied into a man and a woman. So that's the grand big picture of this. Now let's just look through. I'll start in verse 22, and, and the way that Paul approaches this is he sort of talks about it in terms of responsibilities of the wife and responsibilities of the husband. And he starts with the wife, verses 22 through 24. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Um, now, I joked a little bit earlier that this passage is sometimes read at weddings, sometimes not this part. Um, sometimes they just start at verse 25 because nobody finds anything controversial about the husband loving his wife, but there is a lot of controversy surrounding the calling for women or for wives to submit to their husbands, which, which I'll get into this a little bit, but this is not the only passage that talks about this. Paul talks about this in Colossians. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. This is a consistent biblical call. So this isn't Paul just talking specifically, all right, to, to you Ephesians, I feel like this is what you should do. This is a consistent biblical reality. It's just an, ex, uh, an assumed norm. Um, now, some people will bring this up. Some people will say, well, it, it's not that wives are supposed to submit to our husbands. All of us are supposed to submit to each other. There's the idea of mutual submission, which is weird because it's like, it's, it's kind of right and it's kind of not right. 
Because right before this passage, in verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And actually, to the point that in verse 22, when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, the word submit actually isn't in there because it sort of is a participle phrase. And what that means is it's it's flowing out of that command to submit. So it says, all right, everybody submit to one another and wives to husbands. And so the, the word submit there is implied. It's, it's clearly meant to be the idea in there. But people will say, oh, well, what he's just saying is we all submit to each other. So there's nothing special about wives submitting to husbands. We all submit to each other. In a way, this is true. This is the overarching idea that Paul is getting at, that in our relationships, we all, in a certain understanding of the word, are submitting ourselves to each other. Now, submission has to do with, with sort of ordering yourself under somebody's authority. And so the ultimate idea of, of us all submitting ourselves to each other is the idea that, all right, starting as husbands and wives, we are both yielding our preferences and our interests for the best interest of the other. Wives are doing that for husbands. Husbands are doing that for wives. He gets into children and parents, and it's the same thing. Children are yielding their interests to the interests of their parents. Parents are yielding their preferences to, to the interests of their children. Gets into servants and masters. Same thing. You're, you're submitting to each other. So in a way, this is true. In, in a very general sense, you'd say wives submit to husbands and husbands do submit to wives. That, that would be in the very general sense. Um, at the same time, we're doing a major disservice to this passage, and we're just ignoring the plain meaning of the passage if we're not recognizing that there is a specific sense in which wives are supposed to submit to husbands that's not the same as how husbands are supposed to submit to wives. Wives are supposed to submit to husbands by ordering themselves under the leadership of their husbands, because that's what the word submit means. And then when you get into the passage on husbands, husbands are supposed to, big picture, submit themselves, yield to the preferences of their wives by lovingly leading. Um, in the same way, if you look at the children and parents, you'd say, well, they're supposed to submit to each other in the broad sense, but nobody makes the argument that, well, maybe parents are supposed to obey their children in the same way children are supposed to obey their parents. That's not how this works. The call to submission is a real call. I recognize this is wildly countercultural, and so I, I don't know where everybody's at as you're listening to this, but some of you might be like, does he get this? This is a word we don't go for. Um, and in fact, when I'm doing weddings, I, I make sure to flag for people in the vows to say, this is in the vows. You, you need to make sure you're okay with this because this is in the vows that we're going to say together. So I understand that this is a big battleground word. So, so let's just talk a little bit about it and why it's significant. Um, this is significant because the idea of submission is something that we all do. Um, all of us have some facet in our lives, whether it's sort of uh, employees submitting to their employers, whether it has to do with us as citizens submitting to the government, whether it has to do with in the stage of being a child that you're submitting to your parents. We, we all have areas of our lives that we submit. And the order that's being set up here is that wives are going to submit to husbands. And, and one more thing, and before getting into the practicality of this, is just saying we may look at this and say this is weird. Culturally, this feels weird. I just want to say in a culture gone crazy, with male and female and trying to figure out how we work together, maybe it's worth a second look. Maybe if, even if you're a skeptic and maybe even if you don't think that you should take the Bible that seriously, you're, you're not committed to God's word being inerrant, um, you should still give this a second look to say, things the way that we're doing them right now are not working well. Maybe I should look at this. Maybe God knows something that I don't know. Um, and so, so getting into the specifics of what this looks like. And, and once again, th this is the biblical teaching. This is what Ephesians is saying. This is what Colossians says. This is what 1 Peter says. That This shouldn't be controversial that this is what the Bible teaches. 
Um, now, some people talk about submission sort of as that what this means is in marriage, sometimes you, you reach an impasse uh, and, and the husband is the tiebreaker. Um, so, so, you know, say you're having an argument in your marriage and you're trying to figure out, um, do we send our kids to public school or do we send our kids to private school? And, and you're debating that. And maybe the husband wants to send them to public school. The wife wants to send them to private school. They both made their case. They've lovingly tried to come together and, and come to a mutual decision. They just can't. Neither of them is budging on this. And so then they say, all right, well, the husband's going to make the decision because the wife submits to the husband. He's, he's the tiebreaker. Um, I, I want to say there's something to this. That there are times where that does come into play. But that's a bad baseline for us to have. And the reason why that's a bad baseline for us to have is if we are relegating sort of headship and submission to just the tiebreaker situations, then we're missing the fact that both of these are meant to be active. Submission is not passive, it's active. Headship is not passive, it's active. And I think that we could see this if we just think of submission in the other areas of our lives. Um, so, so I'll just share for me. Um, I, you know, I've moved into the lead pastor role now here at LBF Church and been in that for a little over a month. Um, but for 10 years, um, I was in submission to Gary as the lead pastor here. I mean, Gary was a great boss, a great person to work for, but there were definitely times that he would set an agenda that if, if I had been the one making the call at that moment, it wouldn't have been exactly the same. We, we weren't far apart, but I would have made different calls. Um, for me, in, in living in submission to Gary and all of that, what that meant was not simply, well, I'm going to sit in my office. We'll see how this plays out. I'll wait till the next piece of instruction comes. I'm, I'm not going to rock the boat, but I'm just going to kind of sit here and let him do his thing. The way that worked out is with me looking to be very active and to say, all right, if, if Gary is saying, for example, if Gary is saying right now, um, discipleship is a big priority, but we still don't know how we're going to do it then I'm going to go into my office and I'm going to try to come up with three to five ideas of how we might do this and work out plans and go back to Gary and say, all right, you, you've set the agenda on this. Uh, uh, here's some ideas. Here's how we might do this. And here's how we might communicate to this. And here's key people who would be involved. That in no way is subverting Gary's authority. That in many ways is me coming underneath his authority and saying, I'm going to look to help you be successful. If we think of submission within marriage in that same way, it becomes something incredibly powerful. And this is something that if you're in a good marriage, you've experienced. Um, so, so I'll give an example of this in marriage. Uh, let, let's say, that, um, let's say that, that the husband, he's taken very seriously his role as spiritual leader in the family. And so he says, all right, here's the deal. We need to figure out a way that we're getting our kids regularly to read the Bible. Um, we, we want them to know God's Word. We want this to be a habit that, that they develop. And so this is very important. Um, and the wife is saying, absolutely, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. I support this. Um, and then the husband goes off and spends some time over the next couple of days trying to think and come up with ideas and strategies for, for how this is going to happen and how he can implement this and is really looking to take responsibility for that. Comes back to have a conversation with his wife. And before he can start to explain, all right, here's the different things I think we should do. She says, you know what? I've been thinking about this and I've been praying for this. And actually, I wrote some things up. I have three ideas that I think will really work for helping our kids do that. That is submission. And that's beautiful, and that's powerful, and that's active. That's her saying, all right, I get how you're leading us. I, I get where you're looking to take us. I am going to actively come under that leadership and help as much as possible. And so when we're talking about this, let's not make the mistake of thinking about this as some passive, just sort of sit back and wait, and then he'll come in and give you the instructions on the next thing that you're going to do. Sometimes the tiebreaker is the way that submission comes into play, but most of the time it's not. It's meant to be active. Both the husband is actively leading with love, 
and the wife is actively responding with submission and with support. That's the idea that Paul is getting at here when he talks about all this. And he talks about, um, in this part, uh, the idea of the husband as the head. And again, he relates it to Christ and the church. That's a preview of where he's going to eventually go, which we already read. Um, the, the headship is going to then get defined. Um, and the idea of headship, I, I have heard some people try to make the whole headship idea about, all right, that this is not about authority or leadership. This is more about source. And this is the idea that, of the husband as the source. Um, this is just a bad interpretation. And this is just something that uh, I genuinely believe we would never come up with unless we were desperately trying to get away from the idea of submission and headship, uh, unless we had decided we just need to find a way out of this without giving up the Bible. So we need to redefine the terms. Headship does have to do with authority. It has to do with more, but it certainly does talk about that idea. Um, so in verse 25, he starts getting into um, uh, he starts getting into the whole idea of husbands. He addresses husbands, and he says, husbands, love your wives. So if the key command to the wife is, all right, submit to your husband, come under leadership, that doesn't mean don't speak up, that doesn't mean don't say when you think he's wrong, that doesn't mean passively wait, that means actively help and support and come under that kind of leadership. The husband's call is to love the wife. And if you start to get into how that's defined, he says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in this analogy, once again, in, in the great analogy of marriage, the groom, the husband is representing Christ and the wife, the bride is representing the church and the relationship that's meant to happen between Christ and his church. So he says, all right, husbands, here's your calling. You're meant to love your wives. And just to define that, that means that like Jesus, you should be giving yourself for them. Now, Jesus died for his bride. He died for his church. So that means for, for us as husbands, if we're taking this very literally, we're saying, all right, we need to be ready to do that. Um, that there is not a mutual call in this between men and women, by the way. There, there's not a call to say, all right, women need to be ready to die for their man. That there is a call for us as men to say, all right, really, if there is physical danger, this is why I tell guys, if, if there's a noise in the house, that's us. We go check that out. You don't send the wife out to check that out. We go check that out. And if you need to figure out a strategy or if you need to take some self-defense classes to make sure you're ready for that, it, either way, even if you haven't done any of that, we go and we check those things out. We, we give the physical protection. But in a much greater way, there, there's probably not very many of us as men, especially because of a, a safer, more civilized culture that we live in, there's not many of us that will end up in a situation where in order to love our wives, we will be literally taking a bullet for her and, and stepping out in front. Um, but when it talks about giving himself for her, the idea is that we are making consistent sacrifices for our brides, for our wives. Um, and, and this can be misunderstood. And so I like that Paul goes on to define this because we could say, all right, well, to love someone is to give them whatever they want. Now, here's the deal. Part of a husband loving his wife is knowing what's important to her and, and showing her how precious she is to him through, through gifts and through flowers and through thoughtful notes and all of that kind of stuff. But love is not giving somebody everything that they want. That's not what Jesus does for us. Thank God. That's not what parents are meant to do for their, for their children. And it's also not what husbands are meant to do for their wives. The idea is not, well, if she wants something, go with that. That's not leading. That, that, that's not taking on the responsibility of being the head. The idea is that there's something greater at work. There's a greater goal, and you're looking to lead the way to get her there. And he explains that in the next couple of verses. He says that Christ gave himself up for his church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water 
through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So he says, this is how Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church by doing all that he is capable of doing, which is a lot, to to have his church end up being pure and holy, close to God, close to God's heart, so that he's presenting the church to himself as this pure, radiant, beautiful church. Um, So the idea, if we're looking at a parallel here, is to say, all right, guys, if we're husbands, our goal is that we would be presenting our wives to Jesus as pure, loving, wonderful, godly women. Now, here's the idea. Women are obvious. Men and women are equal. We're both created in God's image. And so the idea here isn't, well, the wife is incapable of living a godly life, and so the husband has to sort of make her do that. that. That's not the idea here. But the idea here is that there's a special responsibility. And once again, it's not mutual. The the wives aren't given the same level of responsibility, even though there is great influence that wives have on husbands. Um, But the great responsibility is given to men to say, your calling, if you're in charge, if, if you're the leader, if you're taking on responsibility, your calling is to lead in such a way that she knows Jesus, that she loves Jesus, that she's kept from temptation, that she's kept from the world in, in, in the inappropriate ways that the world wants to get her. This is a, a difference in what you see all the way back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, with the whole idea, right, Eve is the one who's corrupted, she's the one who takes and eats the apple, but in the next verse we hear she gave some to her husband who was there with her, and so instead of Adam stepping in and saying, wait, 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 no, no, we're not going to do this. We're, we're not going to eat that. Put that down. We're, we're going to go somewhere else. He just stands by passively. There's a huge responsibility given to husbands. This is how you love your wife, even more than the flowers, even more than the date nights, even more than the financial provision, is that you're leading in a way that you're directing her attention towards Jesus, and you're looking to remove obstacles that will keep her from drawing near to Jesus. Um... Now, now, I already mentioned this, but, but going into this, we do need to understand this whole idea of headship that, that was talked about back in verse, um, I think it was back in verse 23 that it first came up. The husband is the head of the wife. Um, here's the deal. Certain men in our culture want to move away from this idea. Certain men and women want to move away from the idea of headship and submission. And what I want to say is this. There, there can be this sense, that there can be this assumption that if as a man you're saying, no, th- th- this is oppressive, this is archaic, we need to get away from that, men and women are equal, so it doesn't really matter, you know, we, we, we don't need to have headship and submission, we, we can get rid of all of that. What I want to say is that if you're a man advocating for getting rid of this, you are not doing your wife any favors, You're not somehow doing something noble. What you are doing is you are abdicating your responsibility. Um, Paul doesn't say, husbands, be the head. He says, husbands, you are the head. God is going to hold you responsible for this. You have a responsibility before God. You have a responsibility to her. It is not noble for you to say, I'm just going to say that I don't. You do. You will be held responsible for this, and you're not doing your wife any favor by saying this wonderful thing that God has called me to do for her benefit. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to sort of leave well enough alone. Um, and I think even with with Paul, what Paul says next, it, it gives a further indication of how significant this is. He says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own flesh, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. 
Um, and this is right before he gets into the verses I, I read at the beginning. So this is really significant. He's still talking to husbands and he's saying, here's the deal, husbands, love your wife as if she's your own body. In the same way that you'd care for your body, that you're like, I have a headache, I need to lie down right now. I'm dehydrated, I need some water. I'm really hard, you know, my, my, my toe hurts because I stubbed my toe, I need to do something about that. In the same way, treat your wife as if her hurt or her needs are your needs. And I'd say, I do think with this one, there is a part of this that certainly is mutual because he draws into the whole idea of we're one flesh, and, and that goes both ways. And so you could say, all right, there's a sense in which this command could be for both husbands and wives, even though he's directing it to husbands. Um, why is he directing it to husbands? Um, some people would say it's because, on the whole, women kind of already do this. And I think that there's some validity to that. I, I don't know if that's the exact reason, but, but I think there's some validity to that, that you rarely have a wife in a situation where her husband's dealing with something hard and she's just like, that's his problem. Um, a, a lot of times wives do take on those burdens and say, well, well gosh, what's going on? How, how can I do something about that? Is there anything that I, that I can take off your plate? The, there is this sense of sort of sharedness, the, the, this desire to be together where men can be much more live and let live and just sort of like, all right, she's dealing with this. I guess she's going to have to figure it out. Paul is saying, no, if she's dealing with this hurt, whether it's physical or emotional or something else, that is your burden. Take on that burden. That's positive headship. That's positive love. That's positive leading. Don't say that's her issue. You take that on out of love for her. Um, and what Paul says in the last verse, the culmination of this, in verse 33, he says, however, each, of you, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And I thought, this, this is interesting, because up to this point, if you were saying, all right, we're, we're going to bottom line the instructions to, to husbands and wives in this, you would say, all right, husbands, love your wives. That's very clear. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's very clear. That, that's the terminology throughout the passage so far. When he sums it up, he sums it up as, husbands, love your wives. No surprise there. And then he says, wives, respect your husbands. And we might say, oh, wh why did he switch from submission to respect there? Um, I, I'm going to say I think that it's because the idea of respect is even more central than the idea of submission, and the idea of that submission flows out of that respect idea. The idea of showing honor, the idea of showing admiration, um, I think that this is deeply significant, and, and here's something that we need to look at. Um, most of us would look at the whole idea of, right, husbands love your wives, and we would instantly remind ourselves, hey, this is unconditional. This is not love your wife if she's super lovely, love your wife if she never puts on any weight, love your wife if she's always pleasant to be around it. In those cases, love your wife, otherwise don't worry about it. We, we would say, no, nope, this is a command, you're supposed to do it no matter what. Um, when we get into the respect thing, a lot of times we're tempted not to do it the same way. Where we're like, well, respect your husband as long as he's respectable. Um, this is the same level of command to say, show respect to your husband even if he's not super respectable, in the same way that a husband is called to show love to your wife, even if she's not acting in a way that's super lovely, even if she's being kind of difficult right now. These are absolute commands that are given to us. And here's the deal when we think about this. It's, it's really important for us to remember in what Paul is talking about here in the grand scope of marriage, there's something else at stake. God has not given us marriage so that we can just be personally fulfilled, although it's an amazing gift that he's given. He's given us marriage because it's a picture of something much bigger. We are a part of the project of showing Jesus to the world, and marriage is one of the ways that we do that. So as we take all that in, we need to remember, all right, the call for husbands to love your wife, 
we need to look at that and say, primarily, that is a call from God. I am being obedient to God. Even primary, even before my responsibility to my wife, or for a wife, my responsibility to my husband, this is my responsibility before God. I am trusting him, and so I'm playing this out. So I'm going to love my wife and sacrifice for her, even if I feel like I'm not getting a lot back from that. The wife is saying, I'm going to respect my husband and submit to him, even if I feel like it's, it's not changing my life a lot. We do that. We, we say, all right, I'm doing this before God, and I'll be responsible before God. But I also do, do want to put this in. Um, in most marriages, it, it only takes one person to start the positive change happening. So if you're looking at this and you're saying, I'll, I'll submit to him as soon as he starts loving me, um, start submitting to him before he's loving you in the way that he should be. And if you're saying, uh, I'll love her just as soon as she starts respecting me and submitting to me, don't wait. Um, Often, in a lot of marriages, even in non-Christian marriages, if one person just starts living this out, there's going to be more joy in the marriage. So, so the deal is, the ultimate reason why we do this is not just because we want a better marriage and a better life. The ultimate reason we do this is because God has called us to do it, even if it doesn't have that practical benefit in the short term. We should say, most times it's going to. Most times there's going to be more joy. Man, Men, if we are loving our wives— wives, in most cases, they're going to be ready to follow our lead. They're, they're going to be ready to show respect and even follow the lead on that. And wives, most husbands, if you are showing them respect and honor and, and building them up, they are going to be ready to shower you with love. So there is a positive impact to us living this way. But at the core is this whole concept of the Christian contrast, where we live differently than the world around us. We persevere even in difficult marriages. We continue to love, we continue to respect, we continue to sacrifice, we continue to, to submit, because there's somebody outside the marriage that we trust and love even more than the person that we're married to. Um, I look forward to going through the other passages that we're going to go through in these four episodes and talking about marriage. I hope that this was helpful and stimulating. If you have questions or if you have feedback or if you have objections or anything like that, um, you can comment on this just on YouTube um, where you can find all of our Christian Contrast podcast episodes. You can also find them on lbf.church. We put out a new podcast episode every two weeks, so I'll be back in two weeks with the next one in the series and talking about marriage. I hope this, is, this was helpful. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen, and I'll see you next time.